1: You know I, I grew up, you know Milton Friedman was my mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up on Wall Street journal editorial page. Yeah. i have have retained a healthy appreciation for free markets. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's useful to have a culture that counterbalances some of the some of that
0: This is free exchange from capex i 'm Oliver Wiseman, capex's editor. My guest for the first in a new run of free exchange episodes is New York Times columnist and best-selling author David Brooks. His previous books include The Road to Character, The Social Animal, and Bobo's in Paradise. Most recently, he is the author of The Second Mountain. It's a book that deals with a bigger question than the issues we usually worry about here at CapEx. What does it mean to live a good life? Now, that's a personal question, and The Second Mountain is a very personal book, but it's not without political implications. Brooks is critical of meritocracy, He cites grim statistics about deaths of despair and loneliness in America. And he thinks something needs to change on a societal level if people are to live more fulfilling lives. His book is an attempt to put his finger on what that something might be. David was in London earlier this week and came to CapEx's offices to talk about The Second Mountain. I started by asking him about the personal crisis that serves as the book's starting point. David Brooks, I think for our listeners to understand... um, this book uh, properly uh, we need to start with a sort of personal um the personal bit um because the starting point is 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 something in your own life um that you then have sort of made a broader point out of so maybe, maybe perhaps yeah. sort of fill the listener in on, on right that side so of which thing. Is, in the first version of the
1: book there was none of me in it yeah well this is me being but very english hit, by the way yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking about my feelings very right, 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 right. now it, it's the same i was grew up in a very anglophilic culture it's the <laughs> lip. Uh, don't talk about this stuff but it, it is sort of the basis i um you know, I've had a, an amazing, a fortunate career. So, my mentor was William F. Buckley, and then he set me off and sent me to the Wall Street Journal editorial page and to the Weekly Standard and New Yorker, New York Times now. Uh, and so, I've just had way more career success than I ever thought I had. But I think I felt for some of the lies of the culture, uh, lies which are very individualistic, that life's an individual journey, and some that, that are meritocratic, that you can uh, succeed your way to happiness. Uh, and I think what success has done is given me the ability to not feel ashamed, the sort of shame I feel if I were felt myself a failure professionally, but it hasn't given me any positive benefit. And so around 2013, I fell into what would, you would call a social valley. My marriage ended, and my kids had gone away to college. And I was not, I've always been conservative, but not the kind of conservative that was rising in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. which was a more populist, and I'm more and I guess. So a lot of those friendships fa- failed away. And so I spent a year or two just in the valley uh, of solitude and based on a life of some bad values, like just not communicating well, not being relational enough, being too quick. Um, and as I was doing that, a lot of people in the U.S. and in the U.K. as well were falling into a valley of social disconnection, of alienation. Uh, in America, the suicide rate has got risen by 30%. In the last 30 years, the teenage suicide rate is up by 70%. So what was happening to me was happening to a lot of people, and it turned out, for the last six years, I've been trying to say, how do you pull yourself out of a valley? And now the question is, how do we pull our nations out of valleys? And this is where you get the,
0: the, the two mountains uh, metaphor, which yeah. through the book, the first mountain is the sort of professional um,
1: yeah. um, success you search for, and the second one is a, is a, is a more moral, um, right. moral success. It's, it's really just a metaphor for two value systems. Mm-hmm. And one value system is, is an individualistic value system. I'm free to be myself. I don't want any restraints on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think with that was a value system we adopted, really, in the early 60s as a way to get out of the overly um, confining culture of the 1950s. And it was necessary for the time to loosen up American society, and it had a right-wing version, which was about economic freedom, and it had a left-wing version, which was about um, lifestyle freedom. Mm-hmm. Live any way you want. And I think we've taken those uh, to the extreme. And so now we have to find some way to culturally get back to the spot where we can commit to each other and strengthen the bonds between people. And one of the things at the, at the heart of this, is, um, which you think is
0: built on lots of lies, basically, is, um, is meritocracy, um, which in political terms is a kind of cross-party thing. I mean, right. everyone agrees that it's a good thing and right. pledges their support to it. Um, But but what is it about about that that you think um, has been
1: so damaging? Yeah, I think we've underestimated the the moral and cultural damage the meritocracy has done. Uh, And so one of the lies of the meritocracy is you can earn your way to happiness, that career success leads to fulfillment. Uh, Another lie of the meritocracy is you're not a soul to be saved, you're a set of skills to be maximized. And so it's sort of a shrinkage of the self, a moral numbing of the self. There's a lot of conditional love in the meritocracy. I teach at Yale, which is a meritocratic institution par excellence, And a lot of the kids there, their parents love them all the time, but they show love when the kid does something they think will lead to career success. And the parents withdraw love when the the kid does something they think will not lead to career success. And so those kids, uh, the most important relationship in their life is fragile. They feel Mm -hmm. they have to earn their parents' love by performing really well. And that's just a horrible way to live. Uh, And then the final and most corrosive view of the meritocracy is that people who've succeeded or are smarter... Are somehow worth more than others. And this is something people in society who are not part of the meritocratic elite feel and are resentful and alienated about it and angry. And that's why we have uh, populist uprisings, because they feel invisible and looked down upon. And so to me, the meritocracy is necessary. We're always going to have a meritocracy. But the culture of the meritocracy has been corrosive in a lot of different ways. Uh, of course, the, I guess the, the sort of absurd extreme
0: of this is the college, college admission scandal, right. which. Um, kind of laid a lot of this bare in America. What do you think that told, told people about about all of this?
1: Yeah, just the, the, the insane status orientation. I mean, we put our kids through the university admissions process at age 15, and that teaches them that status uh, and achievement are at the core of life. And, you know, we look back on sort of Victorian or medieval novels and plays where people made these fine social distinctions between one family and another, which was more prestigious, mm well, they were as nothing compared to the fine distinctions we in the U.S. make between Princeton and Williams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All these excellent schools, which we have these fine, like one of them gets ranked slightly higher than the other, and so people will pay millions of dollars to get into the one that ranks slightly mm-hmm. higher than the other. And it's become uh, the way we... Uh, it, it's Another lie of the meritocracy is that you could get prestigious... You can win prestige by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. Mm. And Yale and Harvard are a brand. Princeton's a brand. Oxford, Cambridge are brands in the same way that, um, you know, Gucci's a brand. Uh, I have a friend who was at a job interview, and he turned the question around on his questioner, and he asked her at the end of the interview, uh, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And that's a very good question to ask people. And she burst out crying, because she wouldn't be doing HR at that company, but she's too afraid to quit. Mm-hmm. And so I now ask that question to my Yale students, and every time I ask it of a group of, say, 24, there's two or three who say, I'd, I'd leave Yale. It's not the right school for them, but they don't want to give up the brand. Mm. And so a lot of people become imprisoned by the brands. Mm. One of the things I sort of found myself thinking reading
0: the book is um, is the question of, you know, are, you de- are you describing a, a new or an old problem? I mean, and maybe that's too black and white a way of putting it. Um, yeah. In other words, are you describing a kind of first world problem that you know, is a product of the fabulous you know, wealth and yeah. uh, Techn- technological innovation and so on that we enjoy as a as a as a society or are you describing something that's you know deeply you know where all humans always have been susceptible to and always will be susceptible
1: to and you know how do you sort of where do you sort of sit on that yeah first i don't think it's a first world problem i think finding meaning and spiritual sustenance in life is a universal human problem and so i've been to a lot of very poor parts of the world and I've never met anybody who didn't want to have a meaningful life with good right. relationships. So it's it's foundational, not just a luxury you get after food and water. Uh, but it's uh, I think it's a perpetual problem, especially for those of us, frankly, in um, English, North America. Uh, we're just less communal than most other cultures. And it's reflected in good ways, I would say, in our economy, but also in bad ways. Um, we don't have the same sort of um, communal nature. that that is assumed in Africa, in Latin America, and in Japan, say. Uh, and so we've, in the U.S., and I think here too, we buy kids this book called Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. Oh, yeah, And it's about a young kid leading a life from school all the way up to success. But if you actually look at the book... The lesson is that life is an individual journey. He's got no friends and no attachments, no relations. Mm. And I just ran into a sociologist at Stanford, I think, who said she hands that book to immigrant kids, immigrants to the U.S., and they hate that book because it doesn't <laughs> reflect their experience. Like, how do you go by when you have no attachments? Yeah. But that's sort of the, the subtle um, assumption of our culture, that mm-hmm. life is an individual journey. And that's another of the sort of lies, isn't it, that, that uh, life is a sort of collection of experiences. That you yeah, which is, you know, Kierkegaard and... described this... Kierkegaard weirdly anticipated Instagram <laughs> yeah. because he, he had this concept called the aesthetic life where you measure your life by whether it's p- by aesthetic criteria. Is it pleasurable mm. or painful? And he said, well, that's great for a little while, but eventually you want your life to add up to something. Mm. And th- then you can't use aesthetic criteria to measure that. And so you know, my hope is that we'll move away from a life that's hyper-individualized and not revert, which is what we're doing right now, to tribe. tribe is a way to form community but it's a very ugly way to form community it's based on mutual hatred and in the book i talk about four commitments and a lot of the book has really grown out of my teaching at school where my students in the 15 or 20 years after graduation are going to make four big commitments in their lives most of them to a spouse and family to a vocation to a philosophy and faith and to a community and how the fulfillment of our lives depends on how smartly they choose those who to marry what vocation going to go into where to live what to believe and then how well they execute on those commitments so a lot of the book is just saying here's how to do commitments well mm. and what and what do we get what do we get wrong about commitments and how, how we how we make them that well we we tend not to make them which we yeah. want to think oh i'm going to keep my options open mm. um and then once you uh but I, I, my view is don't keep your options open. You've got to commit to something. And a lot of the advice I give is just super practical. Like, how do you find out what your vocation is? That's often a very aesthetic decision. What do you feel is beautiful? Mm. And so I tell the story of the scientist E.O. Wilson, who when he was seven, he, he, his parents were divorcing. They sent him off to some family he didn't know to live on the ocean f- front in Florida. And he discovered fish... A uh, jellyfish, he'd never heard of a jellyfish before. He was astounded by it. He saw a stingray, and he, he was immediately seized by the desire to know this world, and he fell in love with the world, just fell at home there. And often the, we choose our, our vacations just because we have an aesthetic sense of feeling at home. My daughter plays ice hockey, and she started at 5, and she's now 25, and she teaches ice hockey. She just feels at home at a rink. A painter was once asked, um, uh, why did you become a painter? And she just said, I love the smell of paint. There's just some aesthetic sense, and for me, it was writing I read. I read Paddington the Bear when I was seven, and I've been writing ever since. And then how do you stick with your commitments? Um, Some of that is just how to do relationship well. And so, basically, I culled a lot of the best advice I could find from anywhere and threw it in this book. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in marriage, how do you do the marriage commitment well? Um, One of the things, uh, some of it is just practical advice that, you know, they say if you're married, you should never go to bed mad. But sometimes you should just go to bed. You're tired, go to bed, <laughs> yeah. make waffles, and you'll feel happier in the morning. Um, another piece of advice I read somewhere and Pass Along is that if you're, gonna, if you're a wife and you're going to bitch to your, somebody about your uh, husband's bad behavior, bitch to his mom and not yours because his mom will forgive him and yours never will. <laughs> so it's just it, like living on relationally is actually a very day-to-day practical mm. business.
0: is the fact I think that I would say basically everyone recognises this problem in some way, shape or form. Right. So I, I, you know, Capex is a, with the, the website I edit is a sort of pro-market, fairly individualistic, right. ideologically right. Um, um, outfit. I probably know I'm on first name terms with probably everyone in Britain who thinks we need more individualism and <laughs> <Right>. more hyper individualism, <laughs> right. um, and the rest of the country um, disagrees with, it, um, right. with with those people I know. Um, so, what do you kind of, how, you know, how do you kind of make sense of that, that, that there's this problem that people see, um, you know, no one ever would mention the word community in a, anything other than a positive sense, right? Right, right. Um, So, how do you make the step from that recognition of the problem to actually improving the, the situation as yeah. you, which you think has gone wrong
1: somehow? Well, so, you know, I, I grew up, you know, Milton Friedman was my mentor, mm-hmm. uh, I grew up Wall Street Journal editorial Page, yeah. I have, have retained a healthy appreciation for free markets, mm-hmm. But I do think it's useful to have a culture that counterbalances some of, the, some of that. Mm-hmm. And so the market is always going to drive us to be competitive, uh, to be fast, uh, to be productive, uh, and to be achievement-oriented, and to be ambitious. Uh, and, but to actually have a healthy market, it relies on a bed of social relationships, a bed of trust. And there's a great deal of research on this that high trust societies have better markets because mm. you can basically take somebody at their word when you're doing a, a contract with them and but those uh deals have to have to be formed at the foundational level of the market, which is the level of social trust and social cohesion and i i don't uh, t s Eliot once said one of the great illusions of life is that you can produce a system uh so well structured that people don't have to be good mm-hmm. and I think that is a lie, that people have to be good. Even in the, for the market to work, you have to have a moral cohesion to society. For politics to work, without being a complete dog-eat-dog, you have to have some moral cohesion. And so you know, I've a lot of my heroes, there was a guy named Michael Novak, who probably died 10 or 15 years ago, who would write about capitalism, but write about the social structure that you need to surround capitalism. And so my problem, my argument would be uh, that social cohesion has fallen away. Uh, and the systems of care have fallen away. And we had um, the Enlightenment was very individualistic. It was mostly written by men like John Rock and Jean Paul Rousseau, Jean Jacques Rousseau, who um, didn't have children. <laughs> and, yeah. and probably did not even see the systems of care the women around them were constructing and did not appreciate it. And so I, I do think um, you need the market plus a social cohesion that pushes against the market, or else mm-hmm. we just become. Randian figures and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not in favour of being a Randian figure
0: right? but equally you're not making a sort of conventionally left wing point because you're not saying that this is a you're not calling for, you're not calling for an alternative economic system certainly nor are you right. calling for sort of the state to come in and necessarily provide something that
1: um, you know isn't there right. and you're, you're asking for a sort of bottom up solution right. and, and you know somebody made the good point that sta- the state can provide services but it can't provide care it can't actually do relationships. Mm. That's up to neighbors, family members, friends, mm. community. But that system of care has to be in place. And so, I, I, this is much more I, about shifting culture than it is about, you know, going yeah. back to socialism. And you know, I'm now surrounded by people in the U.S. who want to go back to socialism, as I mm. guess you are here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not in this building. I have not to say. in this but, building. <laughs> no. Well, this is Keith Joseph. More generally. Yeah. But yeah, I'm you know having already fought this battle once uh somebody said i think paul weaver said the problem with the younger generation is they haven't read the minutes to the last meeting and (laughs) and so i feel we we already had this argument we're about to have it again and i you know do you see i mean do you see a connection between what you're writing about and and this 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 burgeoning left wing uh, yeah i do i think i I mean in my view uh, society's left a lot of people naked and alone and they want to find bonds And those bonds can sometimes form for some people in tribal identity, Mm -hmm. white ethnicity in the U.S. or rural, whatever, Trumpian, that's an identity. And I think it's an unattractive form of community, but it is some form of bonding. And then on the left, I think uh, the desire for community comes into sort of state-centered economic community. Mm -hmm. And I think socialism, the reason it has perpetual appeal uh, is that it does seem to offer a solution to the problem of fragmentation. And for people who are lonely, it seems to offer a compassionate cause they can devote their lives to. So it, it's like, you know, it is a secular religion, and, and this has been analyzed down through the centuries, and there's a reason it never goes away.
0: Yeah. On the, you mentioned tribalism versus community. What's the, what's the you know, and, and obviously you, you described the Trump phenomenon as a, a yeah. tribal one. Right. What's the distinction between what are the what are the features of yeah,
1: tribalism right. that good community yeah. you know, so doesn't have. Community is based on mutual affection, mutual affection for a town or a cause or a nation. Tribalism is based on common animosities. We both dislike the same group of people. Mm-hmm. And so community is built out an abundance mentality. There's plenty for us all to go around. I can have my community, you can have yours, and we can create enough so there'll be plenty. Uh, tribalism, not only based on mutual hostility, it's also based on a scarcity mentality. Mm. there's not enough it's a zero-sum struggle for resources between groups and so distrust is the world view it's always about erecting barriers building walls and so tribalism seems like community but it's, it's the negative mirror image of it uh, and it's unfortunately where people go first because it's just easy to arouse people through fear uh, and uh, psychologists have a saying that the hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure and tribalism is our attempt to self-cure for loneliness and unfortunately it's it's the domi- one of the dominating ethoses of our world. Starting Viktor Orban or wherever mm-hmm. you want to go, Putin and and, and now Trump. Mm-hmm. But your book is, I mean, we're talking. Some of this
0: is very gloomy, and you describe the, you know, you 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 list the depressing statistics about yeah. suicide and loneliness in America. Um, but equally, you're not. It's not quite as pessimistic a book as, as that yeah, might make it sound. Right. I mean, most nonfiction yeah, books are like sell by being, you know, here right. is why the end is what, yeah. it, the world is ending, and here's how we can stop it. Yeah. Um, but you're actually a bit more upbeat than that.
1: Yeah, no. A, if you go through the history of nonfiction books and look at the time when they were written, the end is always coming. <laughs> and, and it, it never does, arrives. <laughs> the people in my business or our business are way overly pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And I, first of all, I, the book is called The Second Mountain, because after the valley of isolation, it's an attempt to describe a better way to live which a lot of people then go go on to do. And then just in terms of the societal level, people are ingenious. They figure stuff out. And cultures shift, and they shift in response to the problems of the Mm -hmm. moment. And so we moved toward a much more individualistic culture in the 60s and the 80s because we needed to. Uh, The economy was stagnant. The culture was boring. People were crushed by conformity. And so we shifted, and that was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, Now we've sort of run out the string on that. And it's time to shift to something else. And those moments of shift, transitional moments, can be very bumpy. Like 1968 or 69 was a transitional moment, 1848. There are times when countries all around the world suffer from similar problems. And now we're in another transitional moment, and we're also sort of wrestling with populism, we're wrestling with the rise of socialism, ethnic nationalism, and it's all the same sort of transition. And I'm just hoping we don't transition to... Um, to Victor Orban, we transition to something, Mm -hmm. uh, a community that's nicer. And do you see much, you know,
0: do you see much evidence of Americans, you know, rising to that challenge? I mean, we haven't talked about some of the people in your book who you sort of hold up as examples of people who have successfully climbed the second mountain and
1: have a sort of, uh, sort of joy, joy to to, to their existence. Yeah, I I call them weavers because they are weavers of relationship and weavers of community and they're just geniuses at relationship. And some of them are entrepreneurs and business people who live for others, some who have made a fortune and then devote their lives to healthcare. or I met a guy who was a banker then devoted the rest of his life to um, helping guys coming out of jail. Uh, but a lot of them are in nonprofits, um, and some of them have done amazing things with their lives. There was a kid um, I know in D.C. whose dad had an affair when he was nine with a stripper, and the stripper killed him. So my friend Darius was left without a dad, and now he runs a football program for young men. So they'll have father figures in their lives. And there are people, wherever you look, uh, who are taking in the lonely and, and the homeless and uh, and giving them relationship. Hmm. And some of their work is completely amazing. And, and we're not all going to do that because it's just, you know, I have a friend who sh- she has 40 people, 40 young kids living with her um, or eating with her. And that's just heroic level of selfless love. And I met a woman in Chicago who has 75 kids come to her little apartment to do their homework every afternoon, because they have no place else to go. But if we could all do a little thing, um, be sort of the captain of our block, uh, be an aggressive friend. I have a friend who had very close friends at university and he wanted to make sure he kept them through life. So what they did, they got together 15 of their best friends, and they created a giving circle. They throw money into a pot every year, and every year they take three days off just to be with each other. To decide where they give it away mm-hmm. and the giving is nice but it's not really the point the mm-hmm. point is getting them together for three or four days every mm-hmm. year so they can lead their whole lives together and so there are just a lot of technologies for convening human beings together mm-hmm. and the people I admire are pretty aggressive in their friendships uh, but the crucial thing about this is that it's not a question of um,
0: you know doing this to feel good about yourself right there's a distinction mm-hmm. here to be drawn between um, between essentially a fundamentally sort of selfish I guess approach mm-hmm. to it and something which is
1: giving yourself over to something yeah. bigger or someone else right. or yeah well, the, the whole basis for the book is everybody says you should serve a cause larger than self but nobody tells you how <laughs> so this book is supposed to be show you exactly how people do that uh, and you know i do think we all are motivated to want to feel we're doing some good in the world uh, and uh if we don't have that sense of feeling life falls apart pretty quickly that was david brooks on the second
0: mountain thanks for listening